and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe, where we find the intersection of faith and reason on a weekly basis. And I'm Doug Keck, your gatekeeper here, coming to you from the mothership, Irondale, Alabama, where Mother Angelica started all back in 1981. And of course, email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com, central portion of the program. Check out all of Father Spitzer's ever-changing websites. There's themagiccenter.com. That one's been around a while. And purposefuluniverse.com. But there's an all-new one, Spitzer Center at, basically, I'm sorry, spitzercenter.org. So that's spitzercenter.org, okay? So you can check that out. And, of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and the EW10 On Demand page. Great programs. Recently, we added a new program, which is Miracles of Lords. Join the Miracle Hunter. Michael O'Neill does some great programs as he examines three of the most authenticated, recently, miracles to uh, occur at this popular pilgrimage site, and you'll want to check it all out for free, on demand, of course. And don't forget our show. You can always check that out as well, as well as bookmark. And the Holy Eucharist is our topic. Uh, escape from evil's darkness is what we pulling the information from, but it's really to focus on the year of the Eucharist and the book of the month for April. Another great book for eternity, restoring the priesthood and our spiritual fatherhood by a great author, Cardinal Robert Seurat, uh, a great thinker in the church. And speaking of great thinkers, we turn to our good friend Father Spitzer out on the West Coast and welcome him once more. Great to see you, Father. Great to be with you, Doug. If you'll kick things <laughs> off with the a Father and prayer, that'd be great. You're you way ahead of me. Go you ahead. You bet. Son <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing, especially we celebrate in this holy week, your Son's total redemptive act of the world. We ask, Lord, that as we celebrate it, we might truly uh, be able to appreciate what you have done for us in your love and to follow you ever more nearly through it. Send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole uh, audience this day so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, as a kid, you always think the most important uh, feast in the church is Christmas because you get the most stuff, you know. I mean, candy's yeah. good, but uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But we, we, we learn as we oh, yeah. become adults that, that, that the Easter really and Holy Week is, is, is really the ultimate. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you as a priest, uh, what is it yeah. about Holy Week that impacts you the most? Well, first, the liturgies are so incredible. They get right to the depth of spiritual life. I mean, the Good Friday service, I mean, you can't get anything better than listening to that gospel reading and venerating the cross and then, you know, re being able to receive communion after the veneration mm -hmm. and just the prayers for the whole church that take place on Good Friday. It, it's so, you know, it gets right to the heart, mm -hmm. right to, you know, the depth of our spiritual lives. Holy Thursday, of course, is wonderful, um, you know, not just the, the, the washing of the feet, but all of the prayers um, that surround the, the Last Supper, the Holy Eucharist, um, you know, and then, of course, the uh, 
the emptying of the tabernacle and then uh, you know mm -hmm. obviously uh, the Easter vigil mass has everything I mean I mean I mean that opening ceremony uh, in the back right. with the flame and the, the Easter candle and the procession and the Gloria and the exalted and all of the readings of you know the history of uh, Israel all the way through the the resurrection of Jesus and you, you look at the baptisms that are taking place and the renewal of mm -hmm. vows and the uh, you know everything is just I mean from start to finish it, it's just a panoply uh, of, of not only beautiful liturgy but just soul rending and soul filling liturgy and filled mm -hmm. with grace so I just uh, love it I mm -hmm. Absolutely love it. I, I used to celebrate it for years and years with the Carmelites, um, you know, the, the Discalced Carmelites there in Seattle, mm -hmm. uh, which I just loved to do. And um, they are, of course, they had everything, you know, mm -hmm. you could possibly have, all seven readings of the Old Testament. And it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, every, every single bit of the liturgy, they just soaked it all up and just being in their contemplative presence uh, doing it with right. the, the, you know, the audience was on one side and the sisters were off uh, to the left and, you know, behind that other uh, screen there. It was right. wonderful. Yeah, the Remedos, that's, that's very powerful. And yeah. uh, obviously, EWTN will be bringing you all the great events uh, that will be happening here, happening in Washington, D.C., happening in the Holy Land and happening uh, from Rome as well. So and everybody can check that Rome. out. and. Always you can check yeah. out our on demand. If you miss any of it, let's get to a couple of stories that are out there. One of the things uh, just mentioning about the, the Lord's program on demand and miracles, uh, there was an interesting story. Uh, I'm not sure what the latest update, but at least uh, as a week or so ago, uh, Connecticut priest reports possible miracle involving multiplying communion hosts. So this was in the Archdiocese oh. of Connecticut. I don't know if you'd heard about this. They're checking after priests no. reported that communion hosts inexplicably multiplied during Mass. Now, apparently, there was someone as a Eucharistic mm. minister, or a extraordinary minister, was giving out communion with, uh, with the hosts and apparently thought it was empty or close to empty, and then suddenly it was filled. And so that's apparently what huh? was reported, so they're looking into it. I don't know how much you, yeah. how you can attest to that or, or prove how something can, like that. Yeah, but, how could you know, Validate it, yeah. Yeah, right. But yeah, it's, uh, it certainly it's is not on the level of a transformed Eucharistic host. Which, right, right. Exactly. Uh, those really are extraordinary miracles. Right, right. Yeah, and, and can uh, be validated and, no, and virtually unseen. Yeah. So it's interesting, though, here no, in the yeah. year of the Eucharist, that uh, we might, as we're spending our time on the Eucharist and looking towards focusing, continuing the focus central theme, certainly here in the United States on the Eucharist, uh, that right. things like this might be happening. Right. Uh, another thing, uh, this, yeah. is a, this is a good friend of yours, I think, uh, British evolutionary oh. biologist, prominent atheist Richard Dawkins. Uh, I know you, yeah. you, you guys are pen pals. Uh, he, but it's yeah. interesting. He, he lashed out at modern leftist concepts on gender and the woke bullying of women such as Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling for her feminist critique of the transgender yeah. movement in the West. He said, basically, and he is the author, uh, for people, The God Delusion, went on to plant himself right. on the side of quote-unquote science in the debate, saying there are two sexes. You can talk about gender if you want. That's subjective. But biologically, there are two sexes. End of story. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, uh, I don't know what's going on with Richard Dawkins, but mm -hmm. I know uh, recently, you know, he has moved his position from atheism to agnosticism, mm -hmm. and um, he has uh, declared that his curiosity is now trumping his skepticism. So something is really uh, uh, getting to him. Uh, you know, he, he's, uh, I think, abandoning in, print, in part mm -hmm. his uh, at least materialistic or physicalistic presuppositions and his total reductionism. So something is happening there, and mm -hmm. he seems to be opening up to at least the I don't know of mm -hmm. agnosticism. The other thing is, is um, I'm not surprised, you know, that uh, he might come down on uh, the side of, uh, uh, you know, being against transgenderism because, of course, the biological evidence is not only overwhelming uh, for the two sexes uh, from a physical uh, vantage point, uh, but also there is absolutely no evidence, genetic evidence, cranial brain evidence, anything like that, that would suggest um, any kind of a man being trapped in a woman's body or woman being trapped in a man's body uh, kind of mentality uh, like an objectified um, uh, dysphoria, gender dysphoria um, uh, that uh, could be justified uh, biologically. So because of that, I can see why uh, he would definitely come down on the side of being against um, uh, you know, transgenderism. Plus, mm. plus uh, uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, she definitely uh, is not a transgender advocate. And uh, so interesting because mm. Britain is way ahead of the United States and, um, and uh, you know, Sweden is way ahead of the United uh, States on putting the brakes on uh, right. uh, this transgender uh, stuff. And, and uh, even uh, gender-affirming therapy, uh, you know, giving, um, uh, you know, uh, hormone-blocking um, uh, you know, drugs to uh, prevent, uh, mm. uh, you know, normal adolescent maturation. And so uh, um, I think uh, I think they're right. Uh, obviously, I, I think from my faith, mm. but I think from a biological point of view, and in the case of J.K. Rowling, from an individual emotional health point of view as well as a cultural point of view, it's a disaster right. area. And, of course, you are doing so much harm to these people, which will become irreversible. And like I said, the suicide rates are increasing by a factor of 20 times. That is a 30-year study in Sweden. Mm. So that is a huge, huge, you know, from 1.6% of the population to 33% of the population once you get that sexual reassignment surgery. What are we doing? Mm. What are we ha encouraging people to do? I mean, it's, it's absurd. The right. depression levels, I mean, just even, you know, from the big Netherlands study, 50-year study, you know, there's, it's not one single improvement over 50 years mm -hmm. because the mortality rates of those who are getting gender-affirming, not even those who have had sexual reassignment surgery, just getting the gender-affirming therapy, that right there, the morbidity mm -hmm. rates go skyrocketing, three times higher with women, two times higher with men. Um, what are we talking about here? This is this is crazy, mm -hmm. and and uh, we're encouraging young people to do this rather than getting the anxieties that are behind the transgender thing resolved therapeutically. It's really crazy. So um, anyway, like I said, Britain and right. Sweden are way ahead of us and many other countries. Right. Uh, uh, we're continuing to put right. our foot on the gas pedal of this, you know, kind of primeval craziness. Uh, so I, I, I have no idea 
uh, when it will end in the right. United States, but I think eventually when they begin to really take those statistics uh, seriously and, and see the harm that they're doing and the fact right. that the detransitioners are, you know, can't be right. shut up any longer, right. you know, that they're coming out um, of the closet, I think at that juncture right. you're going to see that there's going to be demand. Right. Plus, you know, already in sports, the idea of people, you know, um, biological men competing against women in sports and calling it fair play, you know, is, right. is so ridiculous Absolutely. because they uh, identify as the opposite sex. I, I, I think um, not. So, yeah. I mean, all of it is just, it's, it's right. craziness. And, and uh, we'll get over it eventually when we see the horrible consequences that we're reaping. And they, they are pretty, pretty bad. Right, absolutely. Speaking of uh, countries like Sweden, uh, there was a story that uh, uh -huh. uh, we put out, a Catholic news agency, uh, basically out of Rome. Bishops from five Nordic countries have released a letter on the traditional Christian teaching on sexuality, upholding the embodied integrity of personhood against modern transgender ideologies. Pastoral letters being read well. aloud at masses uh, at Catholic churches in Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, and Iceland. And it was provided to us by EWTN mm -hmm. Norway, provided it to CNA. Mm -hmm. And, um, and our uh -huh. mission, they say, and task as bishops is to point towards the peaceful, life-giving path of Christ's commandments narrow at the outside by growing border as we advance. They go on to say, we would let you down if we offered less, adding we were not ordained to preach little notions of our own. The bishops explain there is room for everyone in the church, which is according to the fourth century text, is the mercy of God descending on mankind. This mercy excludes no one, but it sets a high ideal, the letter states. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I wish the German bishops would be taking some note from the Scandinavian <laughs> ones. Right. I mean, honestly, it's just uh, at least the Scandinavian ones are honest. At least they are looking at, at the consequences for what they're encouraging people to do. And they're really trying to figure out what would Jesus say. You know, that, that's, that's the, uh, the, the key point. What, what Jesus would say is, honor, you know, what your biological integrity is. It is what you've created in the world to be. Mm -hmm. And when you start fooling with it, of course you can expect a 20 times increase in suicide rates. Mm -hmm. Of course you can expect, you know, a three times increase in overall morbidity rates for women and two times increase for men from all causes. Of course you can expect that the minute you begin gender affirming therapy that the negative consequences are going to be manifest again and again and again and again. Of course this is going to cause terrible rifts within society. This is, of course, you know, uh, the, you know I, th I think that the, the German bishops, I, I don't know if they're living in a bubble, I, I don't mm -hmm. know what they're thinking of, uh, but it, it certainly isn't real in the sense of looking at what Jesus really would have us uh, say, looking at what nature is mm -hmm. telling us is going to happen to people who do this, looking at the impossibility of detransitioning effectively, looking at what you're locking people into by your subtle encouragement or not so subtle encouragement of these kinds of things, and of course the general confusion that is layered upon layered within the secular culture itself. I mean, uh, thank goodness the German bishops have decided they're going to pile on to the secular culture mm -hmm. in a great high-minded fashion. 
unfortunately, it's not going to work. The Scandinavian bishops are all over it, and thank goodness, right. um, you know, they Absolutely. are... Uh, uh, pointing out the obvious. Right, and and we, we, we salute them for doing that. Here's another story closer to yep. home that happened recently. Notre Dame abortion doula talk was uh, unworthy of Catholic University, according to the bishop that covers that, uh, the diocese there. Uh, Notre Dame series title, Reproductive Justice, Scholarship for Solidarity and Social Change, had uh, to do with trans care plus abortion care, intersections, and questions. It was a Zoom meeting, and the university's local bishop uh, criticized uh, having this particular person on. And according to NPR, the person involved was a person named Williams, whose role as an abortion doula, doula is to provide physical, emotional, and financial help to people seeking to end a pregnancy. In remarks during the event held at the end of uh, basically last month, Williams identified also as a trans man explicitly rejected the idea that the number of abortions should be reduced. Um, goes on in this story to point out that the University of Notre Dame's policy calls for balance when sensitive but important topics such as abortion are discussed on campus. Um, and this particular person, spokesperson, said organizers would provide a list uh, of a few of the many events held on campus that reflected the university's position on questions related to abortion as well as resources or citations from the discussion. I didn't know that, that there was uh, a balance on, on getting rid of your children, but especially on a Catholic campus. But. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Of course, you know, who can, you know, how is it that uh, being open to abortion in your speaker policy is advancing your mission as a Catholic university? Yeah. That is the question I would ask. And if anybody anybody can give me an answer of why killing innocent victims um, uh, who, who have done nothing uh, to warrant this, why being open to such a policy is an advancement of Catholic uh, uh, mission, why it is even an advancement of a mission of justice within the university. If anybody can give me a solid answer, I, I, I would be, uh, well, of course, none can be given. I mean, there's just the, the prohibition against murder of an innocent is very clear. The church's position that this is murdering of an innocent is very clear. The natural law, you know, the, the biologist, right? Hey, if a real, new, unique human person uh, uh, comes into being at fertilization, which according to 96% of international biologists and 69%, uh, 68% uh, of, of U.S. biologists actually occurs, if that's what's happening, then you're killing a brand new unique real human person with abortion which cannot be justified in any way because of course they're an innocent the only thing they have done is to be is to be conceived uh, you know without um, you know as it were being wanted but being wanted is not a criterion for being able to live when in fact you are already a human person alive mm -hmm. you're not going to add one thing substantially to that human zygote not one substantial thing will be added. Yes, lots of cell divisions. Yes, that will take place. But in terms of the zygote, in terms of the, the, the cell which is going to produce every other cell over a lifetime, the genetic code which is clearly uh, completely present uh, and will govern 
the, the cell multiplication over a lifetime. All of these things are completely, substantially present. The only thing that's going to be added is accidental change in that cell multiplication. And so all I can say is I, I do not know how it can be justified. I think this is a, I don't think it can possibly advance the Catholic mission of the university. I don't think it can advance the, 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 um, the uh, uh, dedication to justice, which is part of the mission of the university. And I just don't think it can um, advance education mm -hmm. overall since they are literally uh, allowing and which is uh, at least implicitly promoting an intrinsic evil. Uh, yeah. It's wrong. Absolutely. It should not be done. And, speak, and speaking of abortion, one of the things that uh, has been uh, at least uh, hinted at in the post Roe v. Wade world where uh, indicates that uh, Democrats will focus on House Republicans efforts to pass more pro-life laws following the Supreme Court case. Uh, basically, one such example is a Republican-led bill that would make it a felony neglect care for an infant who survives an attempted abortion, which you would think people w would not have a problem with. But just the idea that a lot of people think, well, the abortion issue has been settled in one way or the other, in the look, but it really is something that's going to be used against pro-lifers in many of the states across the country and people who actually say they stand for life need to uh, vote the way of life as well. Oh, absolutely. A vote for pro-life candidates, that's all I can say. Right. If you want to end um, in the intrinsic evil of abortion in this country, if you want to protect the innocent, if you really want to be in favor of the greatest justice uh, or, or injustice that's being uh, created right now anywhere in the world, please, please vote for pro-life candidates. Um, uh, I mean, I, I beg of you, otherwise we're not going to get any cultural change. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get any more justice. I mean, I just think that the lives of innocents will just be thrown up for grabs. And you just can't do that. It affects the culture when you do that. Right. And um, it's like, uh, uh, I'm not surprised at all that the, uh, the physician-assisted suicide movement is uh, booming uh, right now because, of course, we have uh, let the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the issue of the sacredness of life has slipped through mm -hmm. the cracks. Right. And uh, it, if we keep doing it, it's just going to keep worse, uh, keep getting worse. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I just have to say it's, it's a little bit discouraging, but vote pro-life. That's the way we're going to get some changes. Right, absolutely. And one last story just uh, having to do with our friends up north in Canada who, you know, you talk about... Uh, kind of like mm -hmm. euthanasia getting out of control, but this is a different topic. Uh, hate crimes against, a study just came out from a think tank saying hate crimes against Catholics in Canada more than tripled in just one year, according to a new study. Since 2020, over 70 Catholic churches across the country have been vandalized or burned in suspicious circumstances. Although the spike was highest for Catholics, non, no religious group escaped growing Aggression against people of faith, the report revealed, which coincides with an overall shift in the way Canadians view religion. Similar to the United States, yep. that is, unfortunately. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you, the more you uh, set out your anti-religious propaganda, the more you justify that uh, the end of religion is a good thing for people when we know statistically it's a horrible thing for people because it, it decreases not only uh, their spiritual lives but their emotional health, their marital health, their relational health, the good of the family and the good of the culture. We know this. Right. Uh, this is secular studies. And uh, like I said, I wrote a book on it, Moral Wisdom in the Catholic Church.
It's very clear that, you know, um, um, this is a very bad trend. And of course it's going to open the gateway to, okay, we can now be uh, biased uh, against religious people. Look at mm -hmm. Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. The minute they, you know, justified uh, being biased against Jewish people, the minute they justified being biased against, um, you know, uh, homosexuals, being biased against those that had uh, some form of uh, defect like club uh, feet or cuff pallets, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. The moment they went against gypsies, mm -hmm. they every time, uh, you know, they, they legally sanctioned something, it automatically became normative. Once it became normative, it became moral. That's what happened in Nazi Germany. And look at what's going on in Canada. Should we be surprised? Mm -hmm. Now you've kind of sort of opened the gate. You've given sort of legal sanction uh, to anti-religious um, uh, sentiment. And of course, now people um, think it's okay to do that. And it becomes more and more popular. So it's becoming a little bit more normal. Everybody's doing it. Mm -hmm. And once everybody's doing it, right. they, they associate mainstream um, you know, uh, behavior with morality, and so it becomes implicitly moral uh, mm -hmm. to go ahead and be anti-religious. You're kind of doing a good thing for Canada by bombing a church, uh, whether it's Catholic or any other church. You know, it's it's very, very typical. Right. We've seen it again and again and again and again. And uh, uh, we will never learn, <clears throat> but Canadians who pride themselves so much on being very high-minded, uh, better look at this trend and uh, read that little poem uh, from right. the Lutheran pastor who basically said, you know, uh, well, first they came for the socialists, uh, but I wasn't a socialist. And, right. you know, then they came for the labor unions, but I wasn't a labor unionist, you know. And they came for the Jewish, but right. I wasn't Jewish, you know. And finally, uh, they came for me, but there was no one around to right. do anything about it. Yeah. So, I mean, the point the is, beware of, uh, yeah, that's a great, uh, great little tombstone uh, right. uh, adage. Mm -hmm. All right, absolutely. So let's get to some questions. Uh, we didn't get to last week. Uh, dear Father Spitzer. Okay. Uh, my friend tried to explain the Gnostic Gospels to me. She said the church wanted uh -huh. to control the narrative, suppress these books because they did not agree with Catholic teaching. How can I convince her that the church had just reasons for not including these books in the Bible? Tanya, maybe what they should do yeah. is first read them and realize why yeah. they don't believe them. Yeah. But, uh, okay, yeah, that's right. Well, Tanya, here's just three things right off the bat. First of all, the Gnostic Gospels are written pretty much at least uh, 70 to about 150 years um, and maybe as, even as much as 200 years after the canonical Gospels. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. There, who's the source uh, and where are the eyewitnesses? The, 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 the Gospels themselves, uh, the ones that we have, and you should read this book by Richard Bauckham called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. Just take a look at that. I know it's a thick book. It's a deep dive. It's a tough book. But, I mean, there he establishes the case that the four canonical Gospels are definitely based on eyewitness testimony, and it's a best case around. But notice also, it's not just the eyewitness testimony and the fact that the Gnostic Gospels are written so late, mm. they couldn't be based on eyewitness testimony. By that point, of course, the Jerusalem church is, is, is no longer there. 
there, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the strong sense because, of course, the diaspora has happened. Uh, the Christians have been kicked out of the synagogue in 80 AD. They've gone to the, uh, to the uh, diaspora themselves. And so, of course, the, the Gnostic Gospels are very separated from the historical events grounded in Jesus, whereas the canonical Gospels are actually not separated. They're very close in time within living memory of Jesus. That's the first thing. Let's call that a historical and exegetical reason why the Gnostic Gospels are inferior to the regular canonical Gospels. The second thing to notice about the, the canonical Gospels, I mean uh, the Gnostic Gospels, mm -hmm. is that all, I mean, I'd say about 10% of the content is absolutely ludicrous. Right. It's ridiculous. Right. Right. So in, you know, some of the Gospels, Jesus gets mad at a kid on the playground and, you know, curses him and, and of course, uh, you know, kills him. You know, he bumped into him on the playground or something. Mm. Ridiculous. Ludicrous. Mm. You know, or, you know, um, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, you know, passing by a clay pigeon. Hmm, I really like that. And, of course, he touches the clay pigeon and flies away. You know, these are ludicrous, you know, uh, miracles, etc. And then, of course, the, the, you know, the whole underlying theme of the Gnostic Gospels is we have secret information that if you join our Apollinarian cult, then you're going to be able to get this extra information which is needed for salvation. We have it right here. Now, the whole idea is whenever you hear somebody say, uh, Jesus didn't give the information out for everybody publicly, but instead, this little cult over here has the secret. Jesus gave them extra that he didn't give to anybody else. Jesus was looking after the elite more than the common person. You just know right off the bat, this doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. So the, the second reason the, the Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels were, um, were rejected was because doctrinally, they're not only wrong a lot of the time, right. they're literally ludicrous. I mean, right. they're ridiculous uh, in, in the, the kinds of narratives that they portray. Uh, the third reason that the, the church, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, separated themselves uh, from the Gnostic uh, Gospels was not because they didn't, uh, you know, uh, right. um, you well, know with that think, said, uh, Father, you know, I've got, were, uh, I'm getting some special yeah. knowledge from the control room, which is telling me, in fact, that we have to oh. take a break. So if, uh, if you oh, hold that go. thought, we'll come back to part three of the Gnostic <laughs> Gospels. You won't want to miss this. Stay with very us good. in Father's Precious Universe. so much for staying with us, hanging in as we wait for part three of the Gnostic Gospels here on Father Spitzer's Universe. Our topic will be on the Eucharist momentarily. So, Father, you want to get to number three as to why someone shouldn't be paying attention to the Gnostic Gospels? And what would be some of them, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, other ones like the that, Gospel right? of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the God, right. I mean, Gospel of Philip, the, the infancy narrative of Thomas, the, I mean, there's so many of okay. them. I mean, there's a, there's a plethora, um, but you can tell, you know, definitely from the style that they, uh, 
uh, there uh, they have no restraint. But I was just going to say that the third right. thing is, is if you look at the canonical gospels, it's not just the telling of the miracle stories and the telling of the resurrection story that you it just exemplifies such perfect restraint, right? There's not this idea of embellishing and and you know building up you know these things into big you know productions mm -hmm. the the canonical gospels are filled with restraint uh, in mm -hmm. you know the telling of the miracles and the resurrection of course these are big events of course they're they're manifestations of Jesus's power but the Gnostic gospels are so over the top you know it's just it's clearly mm -hmm. filled with embellishments but right. the uh, the other uh, thing that's uh, also important uh, to notice is that uh, in the Gnostic Gospels, a lot of them give doctrines that are really harmful mm. to the spiritual lives of uh, the people. So for all of these reasons, that's why the Jesus instituted the church. Mm. He instituted the church precisely to, so that they would exercise that control in picking out which Gospels would be canonical and which Gospels would not be canonical, like the Gnostic Gospels. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the whole, you know, this went through a huge debate process, right. you know, of which books should be allowed, which books should not be allowed. Now, the Gnostic Gospels were, were never allowed. I mean, you could toss those things. I mean, St. Jerome just went through and said, wrong, 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 right, wrong, right, you right. know, because of all the four of those reasons I just gave. Right. But the, the main thing, though, is <clears throat> you can also uh, see uh, very clearly that a church is needed to pick up. You, you couldn't possibly justify sola right. scriptura, right? Uh, you know, the, the scripture alone could never prevail because scripture can't justify itself. You needed a church before you could right. have a canon of uh, scripture before right. you could have the scripture. So, so uh, you know, the idea of, uh, uh, you know, the church is just exercising its legitimate authority mm -hmm. that Jesus gave to the church for the good of the faithful. And you can tell that these bloated, exaggerated, fantastic, right. ridiculous, anti-doctrinal gospels are clearly not Jesus's intention. Right. And clearly the church acted legitimately with good scholarly reason, good historical reason, etc., for right. um, the actions that it took. Okay. So anyway, Tanya, that's your brief answer. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Next up, another question that kind of talks about the historicity of the I, dear Father Spitzer, yeah. we know the miracles of Jesus are accurate historically and weren't added later to make Jesus seem divine. How, how do we know that didn't happen, that they just decided to, you know, isogeese those uh, later mm -hmm. and kind of stick them in there to bolster their story? Uh-huh. Yeah, because of uh, three basic things. Uh, first of all, um, it's clear that Jesus has, um, uh, from his own, you know, uh, adversary's testimony, right, it's very clear <coughs> that Jesus had um, extraordinary power um, to exercise demons and to heal people, including raise them from the dead. Why? Because his adversaries, his enemies are saying, it is by the power of Beelzebub that he's doing these things. Now, so <clears throat> Jesus, of course, says, hey, wait a minute. <clears throat> this is a self-contradictory proposition. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're saying that <clears throat> I'm using Satan to cast out Satan? What can be uh, more ridiculous than that? Now, mm -hmm. you have to think about this for a moment. Why would his adversaries use such a self-contradictory and really silly argument? The only reason mm -hmm. is, 
is because they couldn't contest the fact. Mm -hmm. They couldn't say, well, he's not performing these miracles. He's not exercising these demons. No, it, they could, you know, it was obvious his adversaries had no choice. They, they had to make recourse to mm -hmm. a stupid argument because, of course, the, the fact was so, pro, you know, Jesus' miracles and exorcisms were so prolific that they, they, they really had no choice but to use the silly argument. So that's the first thing mm -hmm. to just take note of. The second thing is, as miracles are everywhere, I mean, talk about multiple attestation from all four or uh, five sources. So you see the miracles uh, there in, uh, not only in um, uh, Mark's gospel, but John's gospel, Matthew's special, Luke's special, and Q. So, I mean, they're there, they have multiple attestation, uh, no question about it. Mm -hmm. The third thing is, uh, 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 Richard Bauckham makes a very good argument in Jesus and the eyewitnesses uh, that these, like for example, Mark's gospel is based on the eyewitness testimony of Peter. He makes a very good mm -hmm. case on the basis of inclusio and so forth, and he shows throughout his book that the early Jerusalem church was the one that was in control of uh, the narratives um, of the eyewitnesses. And I mean, who's the early Jerusalem church? Of course, it's the 11, um, and later, of mm -hmm. course, plus uh, Matthias and so forth. So the key uh, thing, though, that is clear, and, and later disciples, uh, you know, are added who are actually eyewitnesses uh, to the events in Jesus' life. So that's a third thing that just mm -hmm. looks like the test, the Gospels in general <clears throat> are based on eyewitness testimony. Okay. <clears throat> the fourth thing is you can see a lot of miracles that Jesus is doing <clears throat> that, uh, you know, uh, the criterion of embarrassment would apply. So, uh, you know, for example, he goes over to cure Jairus' daughter. Well, first of all, Jairus is a synagogue official. Mm -hmm. You know, why would you report that? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and by the way, in a small town, right? I mean, a small town, anybody, you know, like uh, not Nain, right? Or not Ean. Why would you, you say that? Because it could easily be checked out. <clears throat> These miracles, <coughs> sorry, and the miracle traditions right. were well known uh, during Jesus' lifetime. Could be easily checked out, um, you know, and of course, if it weren't true, there would have been ramifications uh, about the falsity of the narratives. But obviously, people in that town remembered that miracle. Jairus' daughter, people remembered that, yeah, Jairus, he was our synagogue uh, leader. And of course, yeah, it was his daughter who got cured. And by the way, they were ridiculing Jesus, right, uh, on the way in there, going, mm -hmm. oh, come on, you know, laughing. I mean, why would the gospel writers report that, uh, you know, people were laughing at Jesus right. for saying the girl is not dead, she's just asleep, etc. So you look at all of these things, the particular facts, they're seen within living memory of Jesus, specific names in specific right. small towns it, that right. are easily identifiable, that could be easily checked out, embarrassing things like people laughing at Jesus, etc., yeah. etc. Et all, all these, these blemishes things, that are in there that don't get, yeah. didn't get photoshopped out, didn't get, you know, airbrushed exactly. out, as they say. Why wouldn't, saw, why wouldn't you do yeah, that? I saw right. you Absolutely. It out. Yeah, yeah. We have one last exactly. question before we get to our topic. I'll just kind of squeeze this one in. Dear Father Spitzer, I have a sure. relative who believes in reincarnation. I understand that reincarnation is inconsistent uh -huh. with Catholic beliefs. However, I have difficulty confronting psychological studies, apparently documenting children recalling details of a past life, similar to how near-death experiences offer evidence for the existence of the soul. 
What can I present to counter the belief in reincarnation? Rich. Well, yeah, Rich, one major thing is super important. And the, uh, the first thing is, is the way that children can get extraordinary knowledge of somebody else's past life is through a spirit. Mm -hmm. Let's face it. There are spirits out there, and I'm not just, uh, yes, evil spirits uh, can influence and can give information absolutely um, to especially uh, children who are very open and innocent, and open and innocent regarding their own identity. And of course, can you have ghostly spirits mm -hmm. that actually can sort of influence uh, somebody, uh, you know, especially an innocent child who is not, you know, got yet mm -hmm. the, um, what I would call the reticular activating system, the screen in place uh, to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, phase out things. Um, they, they take their dreams as, as absolutely serious. Mm -hmm. So could, you know, an evil spirit or could a, a ghostly spirit actually influence the dream life of a child and could the tr child translate that dream life uh, literally as if he relived it because he experienced the dream? Absolutely. Now, of course, if you're going to, uh, why attribute it to reincarnation? Why not attribute it to a ghostly or evil spirit mm -hmm. that actually uh, affected the dream? We believe that evil spirit can affect the dream life of, of, uh, of us, you know, uh, um, in any case, and mm -hmm. why not believe they can affect it uh, with details of, of another person's life or another right. person's subjectivity? Certainly could happen, and the thing with children is you have to remember they're really open. Mm -hmm. They, uh, you know, they, they sort of take reality as it is, and they almost mimic it. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that is a, an right. easy counter uh, explanation of it, as, as the, the lawyers would say, a secondary right. theory that explains every single detail, and which, uh, by the way, I don't think it's just an exp uh, uh, a theoretical explanation. Mm -hmm. I think it's the real truth. I think that's what's happening. I do think these spirits do influence kids, and kids really do have details about somebody else's past life that they really did get mm -hmm. from those individuals who had those experiences, or from an evil spirit who's just mm -hmm. communicating them. Right, right, and you know, with Robbie Mannheim and things like that. Like you yeah, absolutely. The exorcism and stuff like that. Yeah, so absolutely. Let's, so let's move on to, uh, back on to our discussion mm -hmm. about uh, the Eucharist in a section you have on the brief history of the development of the Mass. And one of the things you point to, yeah. similar to what you were talking about, the eyewitnesses, is going to the Didache to kind of bolster your case mm -hmm. on the way the uh, the Eucharist was viewed by the early church, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the Didache comes out in about 70 to 80 AD. Mm -hmm. So this is like at the same time that Luke's and John's gospel uh, is coming out. So uh, Matthew's gospel a little earlier, mm -hmm. but the Didache is very early. It definitely could have been influenced by the apostles, definitely could have been in, uh, influenced um, by the disciples of the apostles. So there's direct link, uh, either by one causal link or uh, right direct link with the apostles or maybe one generation in between that's affecting the Didache. Um, and so what does the Didache say? The Didache not only says that the, the Eucharist is the real presence of Christ, but the Didache also indicates that um, uh, priests 
are celebrating a sacrifice mm -hmm. and that um, uh, you know they, they it's very clear um, you know that the uh, um, they called those priests uh, prophetes uh, during the uh, early period and so they said you know that uh, in the Didache you know the prophets um, you know mm -hmm. um, and the apostles uh, could be uh, itinerant and so you should check out uh, whether they have uh, you know the qualifications the laying on of hands uh, that is necessary uh, in order to um, you know perform the sacrifice so when you look at the uh, the words in the Didache uh, very very mm -hmm. early um, a tractate in in the church you can see the same thing about the real presence of Christ the same thing about the sacrificial priesthood the same thing about um, uh, you know prophets being associated with uh, the consecration of the host uh, you know followers of uh, of the early apostles etc so it's pretty clear um, that um, uh, as early on as you can possibly get and of course Saint Ignatius of Antioch certainly uh, as I said, Justin mm -hmm. Martyr, certainly Irenaeus and Adversus Heresies, uh, the, uh, 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 Against Heresies, etc. All of these things um, are um, uh, definitely, um, you know, manifestations mm -hmm. that the early church believed very, wow. very deeply in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Right, and it mentions in the dedicated apostles and prophets, you can kind of deal with the understanding, better understanding of what uh -huh. is meant by prophets as opposed to prophesizing. And, mm -hmm. and you, you say also the fact that the basic reason that the Christian church did not want to name priests priests per se was that the, they didn't yeah. want to con confuse the priesthood of Jesus with the Jewish priesthood. Uh, which still That's was around. Exactly and the confusion right. was no longer after basically, was it 80 AD or whatever it was after the destruction of the temple. Right? That's right. Major issue for yeah, the church right. no longer to have that. So. Yeah. And so uh, basically they, they, they were called, if you remember Paul's letter to the Corinthians mm. where he's talking about the lineup, he says, first there are the apostles, then there are the prophets, who are these prophets, right? They're even ahead of the teachers and the miracle workers and so forth. Mm -hmm. You know, who are these second only to the apostles guys? Well, as we can see from the Didache, those guys are the ones that are basically consecrating the Holy Eucharist. They're the ones celebrating the Mass mm -hmm. or the sacrifice, as it is called. And so they're actually performing all the priestly functions. It's just that they weren't called priests in those days. Mm -hmm. They're called prophets in those days. Then they later become, uh, they are called uh, presbyters. And then after being called presbyters, uh, then, you know, after the separation, mm -hmm. Um, from the synagogue and so forth. Then, of course, the idea of the um, the Jewish priesthood um, as it becomes, mm -hmm. you know, so something you know fading away into the past, where it can't be confused with the Christian priesthood, which is what the the author of Hebrews is trying to do, mm -hmm. uh, the letter of the Hebrews trying to do. Uh, you can basically see then the notion of priest uh, starts coming out, and you see that more and more. Um, in the uh, a little uh, the second century church fathers, um, uh, more than you see it in the first century um, uh, early church fathers. Okay, let's jump ahead to five Eucharistic graces uh, towards spiritual and moral uh -huh. conversion. You talk about the transformative graces are sometimes mm -hmm. incisive and powerful, and sometimes subtle and gradual. In my case, they have mostly been the latter, but over the course of time, they become 
radically transformative. Why do you think they're different for different people? Well, I think some people uh, really need what I call a St. Paul call. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, uh, okay, you're doing a lot of destruction here, but I can see you're a good guy. And I can see you could do a lot of good for my church. So I'm going to give you, uh, you know, as it were, a bolt of lightning out of the blue. And uh, I'm going to call your attention to the fact of who I am and what you're doing. Right. Now, of course, Jesus is right when he comes to Paul that way. Paul's one of these guys who goes, hmm. who are you, sir? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the minute Jesus says, I'm Jesus and you're persecuting me. Got it. You know, and then, mm -hmm. you know, Paul's going to run uh, you know, full tilt in the other direction, which he does. Mm -hmm. And then when he goes over to, An uh, to Ananias and he heals him, you know, um, uh, Paul, you know, uh, get me over to, I want to see Peter, you know. I mean, basically he goes into the desert then and he, he really thinks, oh my gosh, you've done everything wrong. And uh, he, he basically does an act of repentance a hundred times over. He thinks over everything, comes back, sees Peter, and, uh, you know, after spending a crucial time with Peter in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. he then becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, Paul, uh, Peter's the original apostle mm -hmm. of Gentiles, but then, of course, uh, Paul takes over and goes into all the, you know, Asia Minor and and, uh, you know, all the uh, Greek cities uh, mm -hmm. in Asia Minor, uh, all the way into um, Rome. And so uh, basically he's, uh, he, you know, thank goodness. But that's, you know, a Paul call is a rare thing. And even Ignatius of Loyola says in the spiritual exercises, mm -hmm. that's a very rare kind of call. It can happen, surely, you, you know, know, a uh, huge... Do you know you anybody know, who that happened to in, in your experience, whether in the priesthood or just person you came across who had that kind of uh, um, Damascus Road uh, experience or something? So. Uh, yeah, I do know one person who uh, uh, basically, again, um, uh, I, I better, I, I'll refrain from his name, but I'll just simply say, yes, he had a very profound turnaround experience, mm -hmm. uh, definitely going down the wrong road mm -hmm. and definitely had a, a, a real, uh, you know, turnaround experience that brought him on to the right road, and when he got on the right road, uh, he became very, very apostolically active uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, but most people, I think, are pretty much like me. That's mm -hmm. what St. Ignatius would say, that, you know, that it's, you know, it's a lot of little subtle events. And I think the reason the Holy Spirit does it that way is to leave us free. He doesn't want, uh, you know, if he can't read within our hearts that, um, you know, we ha would have the freedom to run uh, with an extraordinary sort of miraculous turnaround. He does it the old-fashioned way, mm -hmm. the subtle way. And so, you know, I was kind of given a little hint, you know, uh, one day I, I, I saw those singularity theorems and I thought, gee whiz, you know, maybe, maybe there really is a creator of the universe according to general relativity. And that really got me going. Mm -hmm. And then I hit a metaphysics class and I, I, you know, this guy's saying proofs of the existence of God as I'm walking down the corridor. And uh, so I, I, uh, I went and I actually, I didn't have to take metaphysics, you know, in my major, but I went ahead and did it because mm. he said he's going to prove God to me, and he did. Mm. So, I mean, then I sort of thought, okay, uh, you know, this is really good. Uh, so I, I did the next uh, uh, thing was, um, you know, I started by complete accident. This girl said to me, you know, well, you know, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I think you should teach, uh, you know, um, 
uh, no, uh, no I, I, uh, I, I omitted one thing. Mm. Uh, this, this kid, Bert Martinez, said to me, you know, uh, hey, what are you doing for Lent? And I said, I don't know, you know, I'm going to give up. He said, I'm going to go to daily mass. And I thought, gosh, if Martinez can do this, I can do this. So I started going to daily mass. And then uh, when I start going to daily mass, then, you know, the next thing that happens to me is, uh, is I'm beginning to get transformed, no question about it. Mm -hmm. And so I began to take theology really seriously. And this one girl who was uh, just a real girl I really liked, you know, she basically suggested uh, at one point that uh, um, I, I, I should teach ninth grade, you know, catechism classes, mm -hmm. you know, for, for boys, you know, and I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, I said, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not your catechism teacher. Mm -hmm. I said, I, I love theology. It's my newest interest and I love it and I want to study it, but, ah, you know, don't make me do nine. She goes, just, you know, do, you know, just do it, you know, and she gave me kind of a, a prodding that was mm -hmm. pretty, uh, 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 tough to resist. <laughs> so finally, I just said, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, I'll teach him. He said, what's she going to teach him? I said, I'm going to teach him about the singularity equation because it had such a profound impact on me. Well, these kids, I'm sitting there, you know, uh, teaching this stuff to these kids in the class, and uh, they can't believe it. You know, I got <laughs> <laughs> telling them about the creation of the universe according to physics and kids are actually pulling their tablets out and taking notes who is that guy Friedman again you know so forth and so on so of course I'm, I'm talking about this stuff and finally this kid at the end of the class smallest kid in the class comes zooming up to me afterwards and he goes are you going to be our CCD teacher for the rest of the year and these words emerge from my lips yes I had no such intention. I was going to do a one and off, a one off deal, you know, to get the, this girl, you know, a pleaser uh, to get her uh, satisfied and quit it. But I wound up teaching that class in it again. It was just that, but I think that was the Holy Spirit asking me that question. Uh, that little kid was the hmm. instrument. But as I kept doing it, you know, I keep thinking, oh, you know, the next thing, you know, is uh, going on a search retreat, then going on an Ignatian retreat. And then, you know, with the daily mask going on all the time, I was hooked. I mean, I, I mean, uh, afterwards, you know, I kept thinking, wow, maybe I should be a priest or something. My religion is the most important thing in my life. What am I doing? Wasting my life? You know, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been a waste of life to be a lawyer or something. I just, I mean, my religion was so important to me, I just didn't want to do it uh, anymore, you know. The only incentive for me was getting married, which I still wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, finally uh, I just thought, okay, you know, my mom comes up with the idea. Well, you know, maybe you could be a, a permanent deacon. I just right. read this Time magazine, and, and you, you could do that. I thought, thank you, Mom. You know, <clears throat> that's what I'm going to do. So, of course, I, uh, I do the permanent. I, I'm thinking of the permanent deacon thing. I can drop the priesthood. And one day I'm coming out of daily mass from St. Al's Church, and there's this book on the book rack. And I caught it right out of the side of my eye on being a priest. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that, and there's kind of a picture of a guy elevating a host right there in the front picture, you know. And I thought, oh, I, you know, half of my brain was going, hey, mm -hmm. take a look at that book. The other half of my brain is going, don't take a look at that book, right. you know. And so, I think of course, I've seen that I looked cartoon, at the book. So, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, well, I was that cartoon. We are. I we, read the book. And that was it. And the rest is history, <laughs> and that will be history for this week. Yeah. So we need you to give us your blessing, especially in this Holy Week. 
Absolutely. And may Almighty God bless all of you, not only with the faith of the resurrection, though certainly that, but with the faith of the redemptive love in the crucifixion that our Lord Jesus Christ had for each and every one of us, especially for you, and in affirming his love for you, the resurrection he calls you to, and the spirit that he gives you. May you follow him ever more nearly in this holy week and throughout the year. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Have a, a blessed Holy Week and Easter. Father Spitzer, we'll see you on, in, in Easter week. Uh, so, and don't forget all of you, join us then as well and check out Father Spitzer's books and DVDs, naturally available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. We'll continue finishing things off properly on the Eucharist, getting pretty close. And then we'll get on to Father's book on morality. And for real, speaking of uh, a bookmark, we got for real, Christ's presence in the Eucharist, same topic. This one, Deacon Dennis Lambert, interesting book. Check that out, it's on bookmark. And tune in tonight for the Rite of the Lamp. Now this is very interesting, a Maronite penitential and healing liturgy for Holy Wednesday, celebrated our one and only Father Mitch Paqua, and also Father Peter will be there as well, and an introduction to liturgy by Father Mitch to explain to most of us so we can understand it better. That's tonight at 8 p.m. special, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Be sure to join us all week long for Holy Week specials and events. Best place, you can always find them on EWTN or find out information about them on EWTN.com for all the times in your time zone and area. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next week. Happy Easter.